0: Hello and welcome to Advocate, a podcast channel by ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights, or APHR. On this channel we delve into some of the most important human rights and democracy issues affecting Southeast Asia. Earlier series have focused on the threats and harassments faced by opposition MPs in the region, as well as the response of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, to the crisis affecting Rohingya in Myanmar's Rakhine State. Our previous series Anatomy of a Coup took a detailed look at the major actors in the current political turmoil in Myanmar and more than a year after the coup took place, sadly many of the concerns raised in that series remain unresolved. Please visit our website asianmp.org, for updates on the Myanmar situation and APHR's continued efforts to address the crisis. Welcome to the final episode in our fourth series, where we shift focus from Myanmar to look more closely at regional issues in a series we're calling Celebrating Progress. Human rights advocates know all too well just how challenging rights work can be, here in Southeast Asia and globally. In addition to a host of rights-abusing actors targeting those expressing dissent, rights defenders often face what can sometimes feel like a constant losing battle. Advocacy often begins with the odds stacked against them with governments undemocratically introducing oppressive laws and policies, while watering down or even pushing aside legislation that is progressive. Yet look closely, and positive changes are occurring in the human rights sphere, including in Southeast Asia. In this series, we've aimed to shed light on those successes, and speak to some of those who've been working to advance human rights across the region. So far, we've looked at abortion decriminalisation efforts in Thailand, and what lessons can be learned from that campaign particularly in the Philippines. We looked at efforts for corporate accountability regarding the climate crisis in the Philippines, one of the world's most susceptible countries to the impact of climate change, as well as progress on marriage equality in Vietnam, and what that might mean for similar efforts in Thailand. For this final episode in the series, we turn our attention to the rise in youth-led movements in several Southeast Asian countries. Look at how many young people across the region are increasingly vocal in demanding their rights, and pushing back against the more autocratic tendency of many leaders in the region. For anyone who stands for human rights and democracy, it's hard to find a good news story coming out of Southeast Asia at the moment. In the last few years in Cambodia, Prime Minister Hun Sen has used the country's courts to intimidate and silence members of the political opposition, including in 2017 dissolving the main opposition party, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, or CNRP, accusing it of attempting to overthrow the government. As a result, Hun Sen's Cambodian People's Party, the CPP, ran essentially unopposed in the general election held in 2018 and now holds all 125 seats in the National Assembly. It's a position of power Hun Sen has used to introduce increasingly restrictive laws and harass and intimidate any dissenting voices. Next door in Thailand, the last few years have seen a huge pro-democracy movement that has threatened the deeply entrenched political establishment. Instead of listening to the voices of those protesting however, Authorities have turned to repressive measures to try and silence and intimidate them. We'll hear more about the situation in Thailand later in this episode. The democratic future of the Philippines remains unclear, as the country heads towards an election in the coming months, where the current frontrunner is the scion of notorious dictator Ferdinand Marcos. However, a campaign led by Vice President Lenny Robledo hopes to convince the Filipino people to vote for a much more progressive agenda, one that moves firmly away from the populist policies of incumbent President Duterte.
1: True leaders show up and man up. Kaya po na mayo, the best man for the job is a woman.
0: In Malaysia, another country we'll look at in this episode, optimism from the 2018 election has drastically dissipated. And the country is now ruled by a second successive government that reached the apex of power, not at the ballot box, but through backdoor maneuvering. And that's before we even got to one-party states like Vietnam, Laos and Brunei. Then there's the tragic situation in Myanmar, where last year's coup is the most dramatic example of the trend of closing democratic space in Southeast Asia. Since February last year, the junta has killed thousands, is routinely committing human rights violations, which could amount to crimes against humanity, and continues to jail citizens on the most spurious of charges. Hundreds, if not thousands, have been subjected to torture, sometimes to death. And yet, conversely, Myanmar is also where we're witnessing one of the greatest causes for optimism when it comes to standing up for human rights and democracy in the region. Since the coup, the country has undergone a political awakening, with the young people in particular demanding their rights, and making huge sacrifices to try and remove the military from power, and put the country back on the democratic path. With the international community unable, or unwilling, To do anything to halt the junta's violence, some young people in Myanmar have fled to jungle areas, convinced that an armed revolution is the only way to overthrow the junta. Many others are using non-violent means, including continuing to document the military's atrocities, conducting campaigns to cut off the military's access to funds, or continuing to hold protests against the junta, often under danger of arrest or worse. In early February, around the one-year anniversary of the coup, APHR spoke with Tinzar Shinlei Yi, advocacy coordinator at the Action Committee for Democracy and Development, and founder of the Sisters to Sisters solidarity campaign.
1: What we are witnessing right now um, in the nationwide level is, is something extraordinary. As an activist myself, given my experiences as an activist for the past 10 years, I've never seen such a strong resistance coming out, especially coming from the majority Burmese people in mainland, because um, we've seen a strong resistance and activism from different ethnic minority, including Rohingya. But from the Burmese people, I think this will be the very first time for me. And, and um, according to our different other different revolutions, this time is, is intergenerational.
0: Ethnic minorities in Myanmar, who tend to be located in remote border areas, have long been exposed to the military's brutal measures, a result of the series of civil wars these areas have endured since independence. However, those living at the country's centre, mainly the majority Bamar. Have long been shielded from the military's atrocities. That's changing, however, with many people now witnessing firsthand the military's violent tactics. Since the coup, many in Myanmar have even apologised for their support for the military's deadly campaign against the Rohingya in northern Rakhine State in 2016 and 2017, which the United States government this week officially declared a genocide.
1: due to happen since a long time ago, and now it's happening. I would say it's already late, but better late than never. So we always wanted to see such a nationwide level uh, awakening uh, about about the true colors, about the military, and how military has been taken advantage of the 2008 constitution since it started, and so on. But now, only at the wake of the coup attempt, this is happening nationwide and we still have to advocate further on the ideologies because um, we've been long brainwashed and the military propagandists and we are the generations who who were born out of military rules for the past decades and decades so I think now the younger generation are more awakening and they need to they are now leading the change that we want to see and um, it needs a fundamental change not just from our own generation but from other different generations as well.
0: As Shun Lei said, the protests happening in Myanmar have included people from all walks of life at the forefront, however, have mainly been young people, particularly those from the country's generation Z, who were exposed to more freedoms and some semblance of democracy during the country's partial opening between two thousand eleven and twenty twenty
1: The young people they were they exposed to the world more than more than our own generation generation. Why the generation z they've been, they been they were born with this, and they they are more exposed to their business rights like um right to information through digital devices as well as right to assembly right to get information about whatever they want and when the coup attempt happened, they immediately failed that kind of restriction over their platforms and social media, so that also portrayed you know how would their life would be under uh, the military rule, so they can't simply accept it. And at the same time, the, the young generations, they were exposed to democracy, human rights, and at the same time, the other different um, ethnic minorities, they are young generation, are also uh, working together with the other different. We have some exchange program in the past 10 years, and that's how I think the young people could connect more than the previous generation. And so this revolution uh, was started by the farmers, workers at the same time, the young generation, they were the key player and the drivers. They are still on the street even after a year long. Um, they are still on different platforms talking about how they want to see in the future and how they don't want to submit to the military rules.
0: Technology has also played a crucial role, allowing Myanmar citizens not only to communicate with one another, to organize and share relevant information. But also to document the violence the military continues to met out against the people on a daily basis
1: technology is so important and that's exactly why the honda is now trying to adopt a cyber law trying to restrict our platforms and blocking internet websites and also internet assets in different areas because the internet itself could be a tool for the military, as well as could be a tool for the revolutionary forces. At the same time, there are a lot of different hate speeches, uh, false new propaganda, you know, coming out from many different groups. And if we use it wisely, it could be helpful to us, but it could be harmful to us too. So um, at the same time, Myanmar people are not well equipped with the digital awareness, digital security, and so sort of things. So we're we're there is a lot of struggle for us. To remain on social media uh, and to believe in the, the, the news, you know, how to believe and how do you feel the news at the same time. So why is technology important? I, I will see to document the atrocity happening on the ground. So what is happening on the ground can be immediately reported over different platforms and they, these Evidences will be, you know, documented for the other different for the just in accountability efforts. At the same time, we we use technology to inform to the international community as well as to the wider audience about what is happening in Myanmar. And at the same time, we use secure messaging platform.
0: In addition to young people, women have also been heavily involved in Myanmar's protest movement.
1: The woman being. At the front line since a long time ago, just that I felt we were not visible and we were not documented as as we were in the past, and now we can we can be um, invisible like anymore so that 's how this revolution we see more and more of women 's participation and they are also taking um, their own leadership, like having a woman led strikes and women focused organizations also are they um, at the same time, I would say women are more than 50% of the population. They are everywhere and they are doing everything they can to contribute. Obviously, there are many other different di- restrictions and barriers for the women, even for a protester as myself. I will have to think twice before I'm um, to the streets because I'm, I'm the eldest in the family. I'm ha- I might have to take care of my f- Parents, and also compared to the men, women have more uh, obligation about family things and, you know, have more worries and socially constructed norms and all sorts of things. So we have, we have like more battles in this revolution. We revolt against the military Honda, but at the same time, we have to revolt against all the different patriarchal rules and regulation in, in our homes, in our society, in our different communities.
0: Finally, Shinlei said... The movement in Myanmar has gained inspiration from other pro-democracy protests that emerged in recent years in Southeast Asia and further afield.
1: Myanmar revolution is, we got inspiration. It's basically from the Hong Kong U-led press and the revolution, as well as from the Thailand protests. You know, it was such an um, inspiration for us, basically not just to us, but also to the younger generation who have no idea about revolution, who are not an activist. We're not activists. So now... So now I think um, in the first few weeks after the coup attempt, we see we saw the younger generations they trying to use various creative means, dress up, and they give different messages to the world about how. They hate to attend and so on. So these idea quite are quite similar to the Hong Kong protest and the Thailand protest. So there is a connection between that uh, generation. So when the MIGT Alliance formed, like digitally with the netizens and on the social media, so we um, also kind of organize uh, our, friends in, our friends and our friends and colleagues in Thailand, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Indonesia, Philippines to gather. The space MCT line space for Myanmar, only Myanmar. So this space is stay, um, stay ongoing. This space is now going really strong with around 100 members and we always update each other about our own different countries struggle and current situation. So it's not just about Myanmar, it was also about the, our all different collective you know struggle. Of course, Myanmar has the biggest struggle right now and they all are uh, Sympathetic, so, and they all were uh, paying like high attention. Even after ten minutes long, we still are connected, and we always have our own workshop, design thinking, you know, uh, conferences, and yeah, we share our ideas and how how to move forward as a as a region.
0: In the early days of the protests in Myanmar, a symbol started appearing on city streets, with demonstrators holding aloft what has become known as the three-finger salute. Moviegoers may recognize the gesture from the hit Hollywood movie Hunger Game, but it was in fact taken from a political movement that was building momentum next door, in Thailand. The last few years have also seen a political awakening in Thailand, and like Myanmar, it's mainly the country's young people leading the way. For much of the last two years, Thais have held mass rallies and demonstrations in towns and cities across the country, and blocked major intersections in the capital, Bangkok for example. Calling for drastic changes to the political order. A number of factors have contributed to this deep rooted dissatisfaction among much of Thailand's population. And this includes the 2014 military coup, the country's second in less than a decade, the heavily skewed 2019 election that saw former Army General Chan-o-Cha become Prime Minister, as well as the high profile disappearance of activist Wan Chalon Sat in Cambodia in June 2020. I Another factor was the dissolution in February 2020 of the Future Forward Party, a popular and progressive party, that came third in the 2019 election. Many viewed the party's dissolution as politically motivated. Angered by the political situation in the country, as well as its poor economic performance and deep-rooted inequality, many young people in Thailand have joined the movement. They include Benja Apan, a second-year student at Bangkok's Tamasat University. In February, she spoke to APHR about why she joined the movement?
2: Actually, I, I was interested about making this, this place better since I was young, as I remember. Making this place better. This place means where the area I live. I, I think that as a global citizen, I have to make every place better where, wherever I live. So I live in Thailand. So I just want to make Thailand better in, since I was young because I've, saw, I've seen many problems in Thailand since I was a kid. But when I was young, I couldn't absorb about the politics things that much because when I saw the adults talking and arguing with anger, you know, I, I don't like violence. So I thought I hate Thai politics at yeah. that time. And then when I moved to Bangkok to study in hus I had learned to live here alone in the big city. When I was 15, and I learned about the structural
0: problems. Benja said she was angry by what she saw as a hugely unequal society in Thailand.
2: I saw the kids selling something at the the junction of the traffic light. It's not that normal. Why why they couldn't go to the school like me? I, I saw many old sleep on the footpath with no home. They are homeless. And I feel very, very bad. I, I don't know. I, I just want to make these people have better life. And, and then when I, I moved to Bangkok, I, I thought that, oh, Bangkok must be better. But when I moved to Bangkok, I, I saw many, many, many problems in Bangkok. When, when I go to the when I go abroad in Japan or Australia, I, I thought that, oh, this country is very good. Why Thailand? Don't why Thailand? Why why we don't have like this? Yeah so I thought that Thailand could be better as I say about the structural problems I learned more about the the problem about the government the coup the monarchy so the movement right now we try to touch the highest the highest class of all mm-hmm. because we believe in the dem- democracy country right but it seems like we live in the uh, in many hundred years ago.
0: As the protest built momentum towards the end of 2020, those leading the charge issued three key demands: the resignation of the prime minister, amendments to the 2017 constitution, as well as a previously taboo topic in Thailand, calls to reform the monarchy.
2: We try to spread our our idea about a better place, about a better structure about the better the better country. We try to spread the idea about how democracy will help us move forward. Not the coup. Uh, I think it's about the generation as well. The, the generation in this generation we can communicate to each other easier. The youth, the youth protest movement, actually I know the youth protest movement since I was in high school but it's not about the big thing like the monarchy thing, but it's about the, the student things at that time. But when when 2019, or uh, 2020, in the year 2020, the, the, the party named Future Forward Party. Yeah, yeah, the party was dissolved by the constitutional court on, on the February 2020. And as as I know, this party was chosen by many new generation of people yeah i I think youth don't uh youth think we the really youth 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 people don't think this is right thing, so we come out and protest about what go what's going on on our country and then it's break.
0: Benja added that the pro-democracy movement in Thailand has learned lessons from other countries in Southeast Asia and further afield.
2: The parallel movement that I have seen, you know, the Milk Tea Alliance. Yeah, we know about the protests in Hong Kong, in Myanmar, and also in Taiwan. I think that the change is coming. The new world of our new generation is coming. You, you cannot stop the youth movement because we are... We, 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 must choose, we must choose the way we have to live. And we can communicate to each other way easier than before. So we can help each other and, you know, exchanging something between us.
0: And yet the current wave of youth-led protests in some Southeast Asian countries are not a first in the region. It's often easily forgotten, but it was only a few years ago that a shockwave was sent through the entrenched political order in Malaysia. A victory that even Malaysia's most enthusiastic opposition supporters considered far-fetched. Riding on a wave of anger at alleged corruption and cronyism under the administration of then Prime Minister Najib Razak, in particular related to his role in the notorious 1MDB scandal, the Malaysian people voted in favour of the opposition Pakatan Harapan Alliance. It was the first time the Barisan National Coalition and its major party, the United Malays National Organisation, was voted out of office since independence in the 1950s. But that moment didn't happen all of a sudden. It was the result of a concerted campaign by activists, many from the country's youth, led by the Coalition for Clean and Fair Elections, or Bersi. Mandeep Singh is a democracy activist in Malaysia, and was Bursi's secretariat manager, having joined the movement in 2012. He spoke to APHR about the organization's foundation.
3: So in 2006, a group of activists and political activists, or even the members of the opposition parties back then, uh, they came together to form Bursi. At that particular time, as an NGO, you know, they didn't, they had never had a thought that it will turn into a big movement. So they came together to start something on to create electoral awareness, to create awareness or, you know, to do a water education, to raise the issue about irregularities or in the election
0: process, electoral process in Malaysia. In November 2007, Bersi organised its first rally, with tens of thousands of people taking to the streets in Kuala Lumpur, calling for free and fair elections.
3: At that particular time, they didn't thought that they would be able to mobilise thousands of Malaysians. Uh, it came to a shock that, you know, I think approximately about 50,000 Malaysians came to the street demanding for free and fair election. From then, I mean, it then became a movement which is important for, for the public uh you know to further, further demand to you know to push for better reform so but what happened after that in 2008 uh 8th of march 2008 there was a general election in malaysia what happened during that time was for the first time in the history of malaysian politics the ruling government uh the then ruling government barisan national lost the two-third majority. They were denied the two-third majority. And the opposition did quite well by winning around 80 parliamentary seats. So some of the members of Bersay actually then became uh, parliamentarian. So there was then a negotiation to ensure that Bersay remain as a people's movement and Bersay be uh, totally independent. So then the the member of parliament who were involved in the Bursay, they left Bursay and Bursay was actually then handed over uh, to the civil society.
0: After many of the original Bursay members left the organisation to join politics, the movement was rebranded as Bursay 2.0. Singh said that the protests continued over the next few years, with one of the challenges being how to effectively communicate what can at times be complicated messages about institutional reform. Singh's message for those protesting in Myanmar, Thailand, and elsewhere is to keep the messaging simple and consistent.
3: I mean, for for people to come to the
0: street and to understand what this institution form, it was not
3: easy. But Berse, in the duration of I would say 15 years, is the continuous awareness that Burse have created. The continu- it, it was even though people only remember Berse has a as a group that only organized street demonstration, but it's not. I mean, we always go back, go to the ground. We go to the ground using our network, going to the community, organising pocket events with the community, whether it's training, whether it's discussion, forum, etc. It's also to listen to the people. What is the issues on the ground? And then to explain to the people, I mean, whether they are voters or non-voters, uh, but to explain to them that that's why, that's how that, you know, we need to use the power of the ballot paper. We need to use the power that we have in our hand to bring change in Malaysia. With the awareness that Bursay have created, we saw two elections with the highest ever turnout in the uh, voter turnout in the Malaysian history. On the 5th of May 2013, uh, the voter turnout was 84.84%. Um, and in 2000, May 9, uh, 2018, which is, uh, you know, the historical election, where the voter turnout was 82%, but this will not happen if there was no great of vendors on the ground. Um, and this happened because of the people. Mm-hmm. It's because how people own Bersay and how Bersay was uh, entirely, was a people's. Uh, movement and people's vehicle. I always say that, you know, without the people, Bersih will not be there. Berse, um, you know, will not be known, or Bersih will not be able to do anything with
0: the support of the people. They were also able to use this approach to communicate with people about the 1MDB scandal, whereby Najib Razak's administration was accused and ultimately found guilty of stealing billions of dollars from the Malaysian people. So
3: this was a journey that how, we need institution reform as a norm, institution reform as a household, conversation, or probably, uh, you know, as a national conversation. Because in 2015, uh, Malaysia, uh, until today we haven't recovered, is the 1MDB scandal. Uh, it was difficult for people to understand. Uh, it was the billions of ringgit has been stolen where... People doesn't even know, even at that time, me, myself, I don't know that how many zeros, I mean, how many digits is there for a billion, you know? So people couldn't imagine. People couldn't, I, I will not say understand, but it was just so big amount of, uh, I mean, say robbery of the Malaysian wealth. But we then came out to explain to the public on uh, coming out with simple infographics and messages to relate 1MDB to yes. your daily life, to relate 1MDB to the cost of living, to relate 1MDB and the importance of reform, to relate 1MDB to the power of your uh, of your ballot. So this is how the journey that we came uh, on creating awareness. And, you know, uh, per se was, I would say, we were lucky or we were grateful or we were thankful to the people of nature because we were totally funded by the Malaysian public. It was the public who, you know, kept Bersih going. It was the public that ensured that Bersih lived
0: on at that particular time. But the situation in Malaysia today is a long way from the heady days of 2018, and the country has witnessed political upheaval in the past few years. In March 2020, through backdoor political maneuvering, Muhyiddin Yassin emerged as the leader of a coalition to become the country's new prime minister. Replacing Mahathir Mohamed, whose party won the 2018 election. A year later, after more wheeling and dealing behind the scenes, Yassin was himself replaced as Prime Minister.
1: We begin in Malaysia, where in just the last hour, a court has found former Prime Minister Najib Razak guilty on all seven charges, and his first trial linked to the 1MDB scandal. Najib was facing charges of.
0: In December 2021, Malaysia's appeal court upheld the conviction and 12 year jail sentence of Najib Razak. He'd been found guilty of abuse of power, criminal breach of trust and money laundering for illegally receiving almost 10 million US dollars as part of the 1MDB scandal. Despite this, he's still believed to wield significant influence behind the scenes of Malaysia's topsy-turvy politics. Singh believes the movements in Myanmar and Thailand, for example, can learn lessons from the situation in malaysia
3: yeah sadly um after 9th of may i think things changed in malaysia quite fast because there was also a vacuum in civil society the key players or you know few key people from civil societies of course bursay since then in my view that uh it become a so-called research or think tank uh civil society where they are looking more on uh they are working more on policy papers because the I think they've been actively involved in working on anti-hopping law because of uh, so many hopping happened in Malaysia after the historical change. So I think Berse was has uh, been campaigning for anti-hopping law in Malaysia and for recall election. While I think that is important but uh, in my opinion, I think Bersih. The part that probably have missed is the people, you know, uh, going back to the people and giving hope back to the people. Uh, I will always say that if it will remain as a relevant movement, only if the people are with us, or only if we keep on communicating with the people. It can be Bersih or any other movement, but if you lose the touch of the people. I'm afraid that you will not go far. So I think it's time for Bersi to go back to the people, to consult the people, to listen to the people's view and look at how they can move forward and bring back the people's movement. Um, um How do I say? The people's movement spirit. I think there are a lot of people out there, uh, generally Malaysians, who are looking for hope and I believe that Bersi can play a big role in bringing back the hope for the people.
0: He added that it was important for groups involved in this type of work to remain focused on their long-term goals. I mean, most importantly,
3: it's remaining focused. If you move out from your focus, you move out from your agenda, I'm afraid then, you know, you will not achieve. So I would say that Berce was consistent, Berce was there without fear of favour, Bersay... I mean, there was a lot... Of course, I mean, when you get death threats, not once, not twice, but many, many times, you know, you have fear of your life. As well. You wouldn't know what's going to happen to you next hour. But it's, you know, being remain consistent. I think these are some, um, you know, uh, learning lesson, And most importantly, I always say that it's go back to the people. Create awareness. And, you know, and make sure, make it people understand easily. We must not, ha- I mean, if you print a flyer or uh, you print a pamphlet, the five points I. Sh- that person should understand within, you know, one when that, when that person reads a document that you share, he or she should capture immediately your five points. But if you make things confusing, if you make your content confusing, if you issue a five page statement, you don't expect the public to read your five pages statement. Make it simple, make it clear, make the people understand and get the people on your site. If the people are not on your site, go back to the people, ask them again, what what they want to achieve and then work back on it end of the day if you want to win a battle as a uh, as a movement you must have the people and when for you to have to the people is for you also to understand what the people want
0: This series, Celebrating Progress, was written and produced by me, Oliver Slow, with editorial input from Storm Tiv and Elise T.A. Dagusek. Thanks also to Kay Thossa Pompaisan. APHR's work is supported by the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, or SIDA, the Open Society's Foundation, and the Hans Seidel Foundation. This series is part of APHR's podcast channel, Advocate, which addresses some of the most important human rights developments in Southeast Asia. Please listen, share, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcast. For more information about APHR's work, please visit our website, acnmp.org, or email us at info at acnmp.org. Thanks for listening.